Testing out a new mic setup. Testing on the new mic setup. Not the high mic, high mic. Like somebody's main mic? (laughs) The the mic setup. Everyone, hello and welcome back to the Publisher Lab. I am Tyler Bishop and alongside me as always is John Cole. Here I am, and we are on the other side of the world from where we were last time. Yeah, so now you've joined me in uh, in, in kind of my my your old stomping grounds in a lot of ways, San, yeah. San Diego, California. Yeah, and it's great to be back. The sky is blue, the sun is shining. It's exactly as I remember. It's the weather I ordered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very different from uh, the weather that we had in London when I was there. It, actually, London behaved itself pretty well while I was there. Yeah, it didn't rain much. It was it was quite. It was quite cool though, wasn't it? It's was quite chilly. Yeah, but that's kind of London this time of year. Yeah. So what's going on on this side of the world, John? Uh, this side of the world, um, well, what I, we were talking about what we're going to kind of cover. And one of the things that I wanted to dig into uh, was this, uh, this idea of the Chrome extension, or rather Chrome removing ads. And uh, we kind of, we talked about it a little bit on the last podcast, but I, I, I thought it'd be interesting to... Yeah, we had Dr. Greg on the last podcast with us and it was, uh, his insights were really interesting. And so we didn't really get to go down too many of the, the kind of rabbit holes where we've got some of the modern news, things like the Chrome ad blocking, which we'll get into here in a minute and stuff like that. But I didn't want to waste all of, you know, the time that we had with Greg on one particular subject because he had so much great uh, information to share with us. Yeah, I really liked the bit uh, that he gave us about how Facebook algorithm works and how that obviously skewed the results for fake news and how they're having to sort of un- unpick that now. Yeah, once that you very un- interesting. Once you understand exactly how that kind of works or whatever, I think the conspiracy theories that maybe people have about how that works or uh, maybe not even even that strong of a term, but the way that you know like you wonder how those things kind of happen and then you realize like oh wait it's just it's a product of just the way that things are made you know you don't really realize the consequences that one thing has on another yeah a lot of things um you know you comment on something and a lot of your friends comment on it and then it's going to go up their news feeds and then they're going to comment on it and it goes up again and the more um kind of outlandish the piece of content is the more likely it's going to go and get hooked into that viral like feedback loop yeah, inside, so when you're, inside Facebook. So when Nana shares those 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 uh those like strong politically worded arguments and things like that on Facebook, it's not necessarily it's not Nana's fault, right? No. No, no, it's it, it, and I think I'm sure that Facebook are working on uh, on making that uh, a little bit more applicable to the modern world rather yeah. than just sort of we, we yeah. kind of t- I I can't remember when we talked about this. It may may have been an event we were a part of or something else. But and we kind of talked about how you know Google and Facebook both uh, get a fair share amount of criticism over these these issues. This idea of quote unquote fake news. Um, but just in general, um, the the content that that is um, delivered through their platforms, whether it is something that's true or false or whatever. Um, I don't think anyone wants them to be the internet censors or the internet police, but in the same token, they have a big responsibility in their hands to help make their platforms good at delivering that stuff. And I do think that they are spending a lot of time and effort on this now, and it's it's kind of apparent with some of the things they've announced already. Yeah, they're under huge pressure uh, as well. I think politically, I think everyone's expecting them to make some changes. I think uh, also keeping out really bad content, so extremist content and porn and all that kind of stuff. They could. I think that they can do a better job of that. 
Yeah, so. and, and a lot of that has to do with just making the ecosystem better, their platforms better. And that, in, in theory, right, if you can do that right, which, I mean, is arguable, it's a tough job, um, but publishers, advertisers, and users should all benefit. And I think that that's mm-hmm. part of the motivation behind why they're talking about putting in these ad blockers into the next edition of Chrome, right? They want to make the ecosystem better for advertisers, they want to make it better for publishers, and they want to try to make sure that the users aren't annoyed or, you know, you know, just bel- just have these terrible ads just kind of like all the time on the page and yeah. pop-ups, et cetera. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on it, John? Yeah, I think it's, uh, broadly, I think it's actually not a bad thing. Now, before, like, we end up having a bunch of publishers outside the offices here with pitchforks. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't get me wrong, I'm, 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 I'm not behind the idea of ad blocking. I am um, I'm behind the idea of improved user experience. And if you remember, ad blocking of pop-ups was done a, a long time ago, four or five years ago by browsers. And otherwise, you know, I don't know if you remember, but you would get lots of Oh yeah, you'd get tons. It was it was super annoying and then you yeah. know, sometimes they would happen would happen, you realize and they'd be running in the background, and then all of a sudden you'd hear like this crazy music or something like that and you're where's that coming from? Yeah, that's right. It's a tab that I didn't even know was opened for me. And mm-hmm. that's so I, I think it's um I think it's broadly a good thing. Um, it's how they decide on what is annoying and how they decide. So just so that everybody knows, let's just back up a little, uh, for a sec. It came out, it was, I I don't know, actually, I don't know the source, but it came out as a a piece of news and it said, uh, Chrome is considering selective blocking of ads um, to improve user experience. So taking out um, hover up ads and ones that have got auto video and audio, you know, kind of stuff that we all know is kind of annoying. You know, you go to a news site and then you're wearing headphones and you've got this awful kind of blasting music from an ad and you can't find where it is and quite often you will just leave anyway like yeah. you just close that tab so I, I i can see why they wanted to do it and it's um it's coming out of this thing called the coalition for better ads which is a it sounds like a voluntary organization that's been set up by google and facebook and uh, I think the IAB. The involved. IAB seems to be the body, but probably behind it. Yeah, yeah. but it's very strongly um, endorsed and headed by Google and Facebook. Yeah, and it's in their interest to make better ads or make the ad experiences better because, of course, um, ad blockers. Um, it's a very blunt tool. It, it removes all ads, and uh, if if you look at the usage of ad blockers particularly among younger users, it is quite a worry because effectively they're browsing the internet um, and they're, they're not seeing those ads that are supporting the content that they're looking at. Yeah, and the truth is, is I mean, that the money that comes from those ads in a lot of these cases is what funds that good, con- I mean, in, in the case of good quality content, I mean, it wouldn't exist in many cases without the ability to monetize it through ads. Yeah. It's kind of the perfect solution for content and honestly advertisements have kind of always been the way that content is monetized even going back to the 17 and 1800s yeah and that's uh, that's the way that it's a fair exchange of value you're producing content i think everybody listening to this podcast certainly agrees it's a good way of making money right if you're a content producer i don't think there's anybody listening because i'm not so sure about this (laughs) yeah i don't like it uh but i mean you know there are people out there saying oh we we should let's all move to a subscription model yeah, but back in the real world, 
you know. <laughs> um, people don't like paying for content. They like, and particularly things like news or um, informational content from the internet. You're used to being able to t put something to Google, look it up, go to a website, get your answer, and leave. And the fair exchange of value is that you're getting, you know, you're getting an ad, you're getting to see an ad which may be useful for you, which has been delivered by, you know, let's be honest, probably Facebook or Google. So it's in their interest to, so this Coalition for Better Ads came up with the idea of, well, let's, let's see if we can do some research on what people like and what they don't like, and then we can start to maybe implement um, blocking measures to prevent those kind of ads from showing. Now, the, the problem I had with this, and uh, at the event that we were at last week where we were talking, I was on a panel with uh, the Financial Times, The Guardian, Hearst Magazines, and uh, an ad agency agency called D. We actually discussed this point, and I, I kind of see it as bad science if they're using surveys. Um, from what I've read about it, they're using paid respondents to look at example pages and to give their feedback on what they find annoying and not annoying. And I would like to see much better science being used. So for example, instead of asking, asking is this ad annoying, actually measuring a statistically reliable sample of visitors to that page and saying, well, let's try this ad combination. And if the bounce rate increases and the, and the time on site goes down and the page views per visit for that session goes down, then we know that the users aren't enjoying it. And bounce rate is the ultimate, isn't it? Um, yeah. You know, voting with your thumb or mouse. Yeah, and I think that observing behavior uh, is one of our best ways of figuring out um, how things actually operate versus the way that we think that they're going to operate. And we talked, touched on this a little bit with Dr. Greg in the last podcast, but I, I do think that it is something that's really important for publishers to understand in this process because um, it's, it's actually something that we've known about for a long time because if you look at some of the fundamental problems that people have with things like focus groups as well, um, I heard something the other day that whenever they foc they did a focus group on the very first iPhone before they released it, that one of the big concerns that they had was that it did terrible in focus groups, that people didn't understand why their phone had so many extra applications and things like that, and they were concerned that people wouldn't want a phone that did all those different things. Meanwhile, fast forward 10 years later, and people are about to throw their computers out the window and just go fully mobile. Um, and the majority of our web traffic happens now on mobile devices. And so I think that's one of those things where sometimes people don't really understand their own behavior, um, especially even whenever you and, and I think circumstances play a role. And you talked about that a little bit last time, right? Yeah, circumstances is really the ultimate, um, you know, uh, test. Not, but because actually what I say I like and what I actually like might be different according to my personality as well. And what we, like, like Greg said, you know, we all filter out our own experiences and kind of we all have, we, t we taint our own data in that respect. We, yeah. So um, uh, when I get back to London, um, hoping that uh, we are going to have the opportunity to meet the, with the guys who are doing the Coalition for Better Ads and to try and get some data in there. So I'll, um, anything that I have to share, I will definitely share with the, with the listeners um, on that. But it, it is an interesting development. I mean, Facebook are, are kind of doing the same thing. They have the ability to um, you know, remove ads inside Facebook. Um, you know, when they have instant articles 
and obviously they've got their own ads within yeah. Facebook itself, they can alter those. And uh, they're having a hard time, from what I can see, in being able to keep out fake ads. So they've kind of got their hands full. Um, they do. I mean, one yeah. of the things, you mentioned the panel that you were on with uh, with The Guardian and several others. The Guardian obviously making news, but we, we've heard from several others that were on that panel that basically they said, hey, we couldn't make instant articles work for us, so we're not doing them anymore. And I think if you're, if you're Facebook, um, because you're Facebook, you can get those publishers back at some point. But, I mean, it's way harder to bring somebody back after they've, they've kind of touched their toe in the water and say, hey, I don't like this. Um, you have to really revamp your offering to publishers if you're going to bring those guys back to the table. Yeah, I think, that they'll, I think what Facebook will have to do is come up with some better incentive other than just the virality of what they were offering before, which is, you know, you publish your content inside our platform and we will reward you with more visits. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's, that's changing now. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know what Facebook are going to do, but they are, I mean, they are, uh, in my mind, the force to be reckoned with in the ad industry. Um, obviously, Google is number one. But uh, Facebook is definitely coming up quickly. They're very, very go ahead. Um, and a, we, we should talk probably a little bit about Amazon as well, because they're the kind of... Uh, they're lying they're the, in the grass. I yeah, mean, I, I think they, it might not be something that, that your everyday publisher realizes because you deal with Facebook and Google as a platform on the regular. But uh, Amazon really has made some waves financially. Uh, so if you look at some of their... Uh, their their uh, spreadsheets and stuff like that they that we that have gone public. Um, it's pretty impressive the the ground that they've covered in a very short period of time. Yeah, I mean they've created a, a several billion dollar a year business basically in the last two years. I mean just as an internal startup, and it came from them spending so much money on retargeting ads. They were saying to themselves, "Well, why should we send all this money to Google? We should just." create our own so they they have um they have a retargeting network and they have a, a cpm network as well for publishers called amazon a9 um and that's one of the ones that um you know all of these are the are some of the we we know them because we see all the data inside the ESO mm -hmm. platform so we see all these guys um and i can see yeah uh amazon are basically um probably going to dominate um the whole of the e-commerce space. I mean, they're in such a dominant position yeah. now. Um, if you if you think of the long game that Jeff Bezos has been playing to create user um, behavior, you know, within like what do you want? Look it up. You know, so that in in terms of a you know, they are almost like a search engine for product now. If you think about it, yeah. And then you have affiliates within that who are kind of like the the websites. Yeah. You know, who are the uh, sometimes retailing for Amazon and obviously Amazon doing their own retailing. And then they've got the, the distribution um, lined up. They also have an enormous amount of data from Amazon Cloud, which is uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services, which they built for themselves. And that, I think, is basically... Runs the Internet now. Almost runs the Internet now, yeah. I mean, they've, they've pr pretty much... Um, overtaken every other hosting company in the world like within two years yeah it's 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 a it's pretty dramatic whenever you put mm. it that way and you start thinking about um, their ability to grow themselves as a uh, retargeting network so quickly one of the things I think is interesting about that is 
Um, I think when we start talking about Google, Facebook, Amazon, the reason why we're talking about these networks so much right now is because the role of programmatic in the lives of publishers, I think, is going to grow pretty significantly. We heard that from Hamish, the CRO of The Guardian. This, he, he made big news at our event talking about this. But um, this idea that you know The Guardian is 80% programmatic right now, he said that they would be 100% uh, on display ads by, by this time next year. And I think that that's a lot of publishers. I think a lot of publishers are looking at it and saying, hey, th this system is getting so good now and there's, there's real competition. It's creating an opportunity for us to um, basically have to get out of the ad business ourselves, which I think is a good thing for publishers, right? Yeah, I think publishers are obviously very, very good at one thing, which is producing great content and looking after their users. That's what they should spend their time on, not actually trying to do deals necessarily directly with advertisers. Let the advertisers find their sites and they can do programmatic uh, guaranteed, they can do private marketplace deals within ad exchange. Uh, they don't have to be out there meeting advertisers and trying to you know, do a, a deal um, in the old fashioned sense of the world, sitting down at a table and signing an insertion order. That is the way of the past. I mean, it's, it's just gonna get um, more and more uh, easy for publishers to make premium money as the premium money continues to flow from TV and other and press and so on into digital. But what they have to do is they have to set themselves up within these auction marketplaces. So ad exchange, if you you know Facebook audience network, if you can get in there, um, Amazon A9, if you can get in there, these are all places that you should be if you can get in there and then have them all compete. And then you've got basically as uh, the quality of your audience will dictate how much money you make and obviously how you look after your users. Yeah, I think, I think that that is fundamentally something that's really interesting about it. And I think the role of programmatic is really helpful to publishers uh, from the standpoint of, you mentioned earlier, subscriptions, you know, as being this kind of idea that, and, and I, don't, I do think that subscriptions will play a role in the future. I think they're... Definitely. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not against subscriptions. I just, I think the expectation that people can flip from ad-funded to subscriptions really, really easily, unless you've got a massive brand an enormously strong and loyal following. And I think really people like the Financial Times are exceptions to, that kind of prove the rule a little bit because they are a B2B publication in a lot of instances. Um, you know, the business, traditional business journals and things like that have operated under that circumstance for a very long time. Well, financial news is a, a tax write-off, isn't it, for the people <laughs> who are, you know, quite often it's an employer who will pay for subscriptions for their staff. Yeah. But, you know, am I likely to go out and get subscriptions for four or five newspaper titles, no. I might get one. Yeah, and maybe, I think maybe. and I think unless you had an aggregate service or something like that that provided it, it would be tough. And I think your evidence is all around you in that, uh, let's grab a, a music industry executive from 20 years ago, and um, those people were saying, hey, listen, people, we, we just have to provide the right platform and people will pay for music. And uh, no, that was wrong. People don't want to, once, once you realize it, once you've had something for free, you just don't want to pay for it. And content has always been kind of this um, sort of free, in some instances, at least on the internet, free resource for people. And I think flipping that and thinking that you're going to get people um, to pay by and large uh, for content is going to be a really tough go. But there are circumstances maybe that can dictate around that. But I think for the most part, programmatic is the best solution that we have 
both in the short and long term if you want to monetize that T- content. Totally scalable and it gives you a fair value providing you know how to uh, set it up and for it to you know, get all of the demand sources competing fairly and you're not jamming too many ads in and ruining your user experience. All of these things, obviously, you know, we know inside out, but just anybody who's, anybody who's out there, if they're despairing because they get a lot of direct deals, don't, don't despair because as the market matures, you will still get that direct money. It's just it's going to come through programmatic instead of you having to pay salespeople to go and get it for you. Yeah, and unfortunately, um, if you're if you're in the direct sales uh, part of part of this industry, it's 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 a tough go right now. And I think that, I mean when you really think about it, just sales in general has evolved quite a bit, and all industries are affected a little bit. Ours happens to be one that's affected pretty dramatically quickly. But I have a buddy that's in sales, and you know he was telling me. Um, you know, 10 years ago, you know, you, you made a lot of phone calls, you went and saw a lot of people in person. And he said, you know, I send so many emails now compared to the phone calls that I make. The phone calls are actually something that, you know, he's like, I kind of cringe when I have to make them out of the blue because he said, it's such a, um, it's such a, a kind of like a jarring thing to get a cold call now. You know what I mean? When you think about you know, getting a cold call 10 years ago versus getting one now, it's like, how dare you call me on the phone? You know, I don't even talk to my own mother on the phone. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, people are they're removed, aren't they? And uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen it. We used to do a lot of in, in-person in uh, meetings and, and actually entertaining and stuff like that in order to, to get ad budgets. Um, so that was, you know, my previous incarnation was running an ad network. These, uh, these, days, are, these days are gone. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, I can, it's funny when I meet sort of old grizzled media executives, I think everybody sort of looks, looks back uh, with rose-tinted spectacles thinking, I would just love to have an expenses lunch, you know. And almost, <laughs> no, programmatic, there, there is no need to schmooze that algorithm. It is going to do it anyway. It's going to do it regardless. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, there were some other things that came out of the the panel that uh, that we were on, or that you were on, that uh, that we were a part of. Um, the media tele event in London with some of those some of the major brands, and I thought one of the things that, that kind of popped up that was really interesting was the 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 talk about engagement and the and the desire for advertisers to want to pay more uh, for big brands or beyond beyond looking at brands or anything like that just the idea of paying more for more engaged users and advertisers saying well listen we really don't have a way of measuring the value there and publishers saying well that it is more valuable we've proven it you know they i think uh hamish from the guardian referenced um a study that um i wish i could remember the name of it knew something uh had done a study and and looked at it but i think even that study might have been based on some survey information yeah and it and you know, measuring brand, um, and they talk about brand engagement, brand recall, you know, how people's attitude to a brand is actually really hard to measure. It is, um, Without doing surveys, it's almost impossible. Um, And the trouble is brand money has been spent based on reasonably thin data for a very long time. If you look at how TV is sold, like just go and look it up, guys. It's kind of amazing that they have this extrapolated data, which they, they, you know, they, they, billions of dollars are spent based on this extrapolated data. And the, John liked this ad, therefore billions of Johns will also like this ad. That's, this that's ad. basically like that. Or people watch this TV program from this select group 
and therefore you know 200 million people watched it you know <laughs> and it and from where i'm sitting it it it's it's all baloney uh, because of course we're in digital and everything is measurable um but coming back to the point you know it is uh, it, i find it really exciting and really um i think there is an opportunity here for brands to um to use data better to create a brand experience um a lot of the uh industry so you've got you've got consultancy companies like accenture coming in to buy yeah. uh creative agencies and planning and buying agencies and the reason they're coming into the agency world is because the agency kind of ecosystem has been very cozily um well symbiotic with brands and so uh they're open to disruption in the fact that if you're very very good at numbers which obviously consultancy companies are they can come in and and probably do this new broom thing so they they uh, I've been looking into that there are uh, there are some opportunities here where um automated testing can improve viewability um metrics and we've been we've been spending some time with uh just looking at moat and iac um which are they're really interesting businesses both of them they do uh ad verification reporting and brand uh or rather engagement reporting for the ad agency. So ad agencies will get their brand money from the the advertiser, they will go out and spend it for them with media owners and then this verification software kicks in to say okay of the 10 million impressions that served on this particular website, how 9 million viewed, how many of them were viewed, more than 50% of the ad for more than 1 second and then quite often there is a discrepancy between the, the publisher data and the advertiser data That's and that, right. that was one of the things that they argued about quite a bit and you know what's what's interesting about that is i think if you're a if you're not a major brand um which i, I think there's two there's two takeaways from this this entire conversation the first is if you're not a major brand right and you say well why does this matter to me because ultimately uh i'm not dealing with advertisers in the same way that they are and i just want to maximize the value of my inventory well uh I mean if if you were listening to the episode we had last week with Dr. Greg or you read our blog um we published uh last week a lot of information about the effect of user experience on ad revenue so being able to improve things like user experience or user engagement however you want to define it in a measurable way so session duration uh bounce rate time on site being able to to affect those things has a really powerful effect on on your revenue your bottom line So it should be something that's paramount in the process that you have as a publisher. How do I improve those things? Those things are by far the most important thing that you can improve on your site if you want to increase the ability to monetize it and then also monetize the long term, right? Because yeah. it's the it's it's the long the long play is having better user experience. The second takeaway, if you are a major brand, uh I think it still comes back to what kind of real data can you ha- can you provide to advertisers that is going to uh support your 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 calls or your claims. I don't think that advertisers are ever going to buy based on survey data. Like you said like how do people feel about a brand? I just think I mean as somebody that spends money as an advertiser, right? Uh, that's something that I've done for over a decade. It's not something that's overly attractive to me if you were to show me some data on that. I would be very skeptical. However, if you could show me metrics that showed me 
that um, those more engaged users were more likely to visit my site or more likely to convert. Um, or if you were to be able to attach some type of value that those are higher quality users, I would pay for that. But I'd need to be able to see it and measure it. Um, being just given you know, something more arbitrary would be hard for me to spend money on. I think it's on the way, actually. Um, so I was talking with Dwayne about this, and he... Dwayne, the CEO of Zoic. The CEO of Zoic, yeah. Uh, so Dwayne and I were, were chatting about it, and we were looking at... I mean, Moat just got bought a couple of months ago by, by Oracle. Oracle, yeah. Uh, 850 million, so not, well done, the guys. Well, I hate, I hate to tell you guys, if you're using Moat, it's about to get really crappy really quick. <laughs> Unfortunately, and this is just from being in the software business for a really long time, when Oracle buys something, it traditionally gets really bad. Oh, no. Degrades over time. But oh, dear. I guess well, we'll have to wait and see. I hope not. But, I mean, it, it looks like a great business, but the, uh, a business like Oracle has got to be getting closer to being able to put that together. If you think about the customer journey, and you can go, you can go and research this online. If you, you, if you try and understand things from, uh, if we're a publisher, you have to kind of understand things from a, an advertiser's point of view, which is um, they're trying to sell stuff. Now, whether that's a big ticket item, item like a car, or whether it's you know soap, a, a, yeah, a bag of soap, you know, or Epsom salt crystals which I, I've been using uh, in a bath. <laughs> <laughs> you ran a marathon, um, after, so you take Epsom salt baths to feel better, right? Exactly, that's yep. right. So, and, and Amazon have done research. You've been getting hit up by those retargeting. Yeah, no, I've already now. bought it. I don't need any more Epsom salt. <laughs> um, they just know how sore you are. <laughs> yeah. Two for one, click here. Uh, that you go through a customer journey where you're doing, you're considering a purchase. You go through a research phase and then you end up buying. And then once you bought, then, you know, when I've already paid for my holiday Epsom. to Greece, I don't need to see those Greece ads anymore, those Greek, Greek holiday ads anymore. That, that is one of the, the, the things that is very blunt about um, digital advertising. And actually, it's one of the big opportunities still inside digital to get better at that and yeah. that personalization to be able to hook everything back up. So I, I consider this whole move towards brand inside um, digital as something that is gonna progress over time. Um, I think that there are big opportunities. I, I, said it, I said it last week, I'll say it again today. I think it's a good, really good time to be a publisher right now. Because yeah, the I, opportunities, actually the competition between these, these big players is going up. Yeah. Um, and this, yeah. This, I, this is a point that I think is really important. I had a conversation with uh, Dave Taylor, who writes on our blog. He's a veteran of this industri industry. He always claims he's been around since the ARPANET, and he has. If you talk to him. He yeah, can, right at the beginning of the internet. Yeah. He can tell you all, kind of his journey throughout everything. And he and I were having this, this conversation about data, and we were talking about smaller publishers that had grown into large publishers over time. I mean, he's a good example of somebody that's grown into a fairly large publisher, owns multiple sites that are large. Um, and we're talking about, um, you know, a lot of publishers have turned their passions into businesses, right? And, um, and he was saying, listen, these guys can't stop relying on their guts because it's what got them here. And so they're adverse in some cases to taking more data-driven approaches. It's not that, they're, that, that they won't apply it to everything, but they're, they, they're a little tentative about trying new things in that, that aspect. And uh, my point to him was, because this industry is growing so quickly, um, and like you mentioned, you know, people like Oracle buying folks like Moat and things like that. There are more and more f 
people getting involved in this industry because of the money that's involved. And what happens when that when that occurs is that all these publishers that have turned their passions into businesses are now competing with people that really understand data and know what they're doing. And so unless you're able to adopt a lot of those practices and leverage it yourself in an easy way, right? If it's complicated, it's gonna to be tough for anybody. The barrier entry is gonna be high and you're always gonna lose out to these big businesses. But if you're a smaller publisher or not even smaller, just you're not a major brand, um, I think the opportunity for you to leverage technology to compete has never been greater before, but you have to be proactive and it's the time to start is now because if you get behind um, and you start losing ground, we've seen it, we've got, uh, we've got a couple, I won't mention their names, but we've got a couple publishers that we work with here in the office that were former uh, advocates of the AdSense program when it first started. They made tons of money off of AdSense and since then they've just completely fallen off because they they didn't keep up. And I think coming back from from a decline is really tough. But staying ahead actually isn't all that difficult. You just have to listen to podcasts like the Publisher Lab and read good blogs and things like that. Yeah, you need to take action and you need to, yeah, you need to be on the ball basically. But things are moving so quickly. I mean, you just think, you know, six months ago or a year ago, um, the stuff that we were talking about is changing on a, on a, on a regular basis. And, um, uh, you know, it, it is hard to stay, uh, to stay up with it, but technology has got to be the only way to, to do it. But doing sort of manual optimization is, is, is pretty tough, I think. Yeah, and things are changing quickly. I mean, we're talking about Chrome adding ad blocking and things like that. But actually, in some cases, it's not, as, it's not that in of itself almost isn't as blunt as things like what Google did earlier this year when they had the mobile interstitial penalty. Because when you think about it, you know, the Chrome Chrome ad blocking only really affects Chrome users, which is a lot, right? And it, it, it's About potentially... It's the internet. Yeah, and they're going to say, well, we're only going to block these types of ads or whatever and take that conversation out of it. Google search is such a massive thing, and it's, it's available to everyone in the world. And they basically, at the beginning of this year, said, yeah, if you, if you show pop-ups on mobile, we're going to go ahead and just uh, and ding you pretty hard for that. And sites yeah. did. They got dinged really hard, and now... I mean that that's a very blunt way of ha handling that experience. Yeah. Right? Also, um, hot, hot off the press, folks. Uh, Google announced today that they're allowing uh, a 300 by 250 above the fold on mobile, providing it doesn't push the um, the content down. So it's not like interfering with the user experience. And uh, I had it was a bit of a wry smile that I had there because. Um, we found from testing it's not always a bad user experience to have a 300 by 250 above the fold. Our system, to make sure that it was compliant with Google policy, removed Google ads from those locations when they worked and put in other ad providers who don't mind. And now Google has done a U-turn on that. So all those people who got um, Google um, a Google telling off or a Google penalty, um, Those nasty violation emails. Yeah, yeah. You want to pay attention if you do get them, by the way, because they, they, uh, Google don't give you very many chances, and they will, they will turn you off uh, from AdSense or AdX. Uh, but yeah, that has now changed. You can have a 300 by 250 above the fold on mobile. Yeah, so again, it's where we're kind of indicated on our data. But the uh, so for those that are wondering what we're talking about, 300, 300 by 250 is an ad size. Um, if it, you know, previously the Google policy was if it was in the viewport when a page load aka above the fold that meant that you were going to be penalized for it if that was a google ad 
Google has removed that penalty now, and so now you can show those there, which I think is good for publishers because I think yeah. the more flexibility that you have to test things on your site, the better because we've talked about this before. Every user is different. Being able to provide them each with a bespoke experience is I mean, that's that's ideal, right? Yeah, and making these sort of blanket assumptions that a particular ad location is bad, it, it, that is the, at the very core of, we, of what we oppose because it goes against the idea of going on the data because you might have a page that you're only going to have people for 20 seconds and then they're going to leave and you, you really want to show them an ad that has got a chance of making some money and that's a very, very normally a high bounce rate page whether or not you had that ad there or not it's still always going to be a high bounce rate page and there's nothing you can do about it just because that's the search term you know what does compass mentis mean <laughs> nice choice <laughs> yeah that's that's because i'm feeling very that, very I was say, that, that, that came from jet lag <laughs> yeah that's right it came straight from the jet lag journey um then you're going to get that answer which is well it might be appropriate to show 300 by 250. so that I'm, I'm applauding Google for doing that. I'm sure that uh, they actually, as an industry, as a business, uh, that's probably going to make them some more money. So, you know, buy, buy some Google stock. Uh, I'm not <laughs> financial is, advice now. That is, <laughs> that is not financial what, advice. Of all the things we've done and said on this podcast, that's going to be what brings us down. It's going to be <laughs> yeah, the right. SEC is going to be fat in here faster than they're you can pumping, They're pumping stock. <laughs> no, we're not. We're not. Investments we knew there were, we knew the whole time there were Google shills. Now they're now they're pumping Google stock. We know for sure. Oh dear. Okay, I'm blaming jet lag. Uh, and seriously, uh, that wasn't a, a stock tip. That was me being funny. Okay, <laughs> we should move on, Tyler. Yeah, well, we should probably stop. I think I think that that's, that's a great stopping point. Is once we start giving out stock tips, we, we don't <coughs> reach the end of our subject matter for yeah, the time. Yeah, it's, so. it's time for me to have a, a cup of tea and a lie down. <laughs> A cup of tea and a lie down. That's a UK thing, right? Yeah, that is. 100% yeah. a UK thing. <laughs> uh, well, we want to thank everyone for joining us once again on the Publisher Lab. As always, um, subscribe to our uh, sub subscribe so that you continue to get the updates on iTunes. Um, share, uh, if you have uh, questions or comments about the podcast, you can uh, hit us up on Twitter at, at Zoic. Uh, and then be sure to write us a review. Those things really help a lot. Uh, it's one of the reasons why the podcast has grown so much and why John and I, who are both fairly busy with a lot of the things that we do in this industry, uh, can take time out of our days to continue to put these podcasts together. So thank you for listening. Help us by sharing the podcast and writing reviews on iTunes. So I think that's it, John. Anything else? That's it. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys.